I would say 99% of the land that was taken without treaties was under federal jurisdiction or state jurisdiction. It's not in private property. A lot of it is leased. So give it back to native people. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everyone, to today's event, launching Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's new book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, A History of Erasure and Exclusion. This book is a long-awaited and important intervention, which debunks the pervasive and self-congratulatory myth that the United States is proudly founded by and for immigrants and urges readers to embrace a more complex and honest history of the United States. It is my honor to introduce today's speakers. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is a historian, writer, speaker, and professor emerita at California State East Bay. She is author of numerous scholarly indigenous-related books and articles, including Roots of Resistance, A History of Land Tenure in New Mexico and the Great Sioux Nation, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. Her new book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion, is out now from Beacon Press. Roxanne will be in conversation with Bill Fletcher Jr. Bill is the former president of Trans Africa Forum of Trans Africa Forum, a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies, and is in the leadership of several other projects. Fletcher is the co-author with Peter Agard of The Indispensable Ally: Black Workers and the Formation of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, 1934 to 1941. The co-author with Dr. Fernando Gapison of Solidarity, Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Toward Social Justice, and the author of They're Bankrupting Us and 20 Other Myths About Unions. Fletcher is a syndicated columnist and a regular media commentator on television, radio, and the web. With that, I'll hand it over to Bill and to get the event started. Thank you, Rory, and uh, greetings to everyone. Uh, I have really been looking forward to this discussion with my friend Roxanne, uh, and that's what we're going to be doing. I have a number of questions I'm going to be posing to her, and then we're going to be opening it up. So if you have questions, you, the viewers, have questions, please uh, put them in the chat, and we can't promise we'll get to all of them. We'll try to get to uh, several of them. But I, I actually want to kick this off. Roxanne, uh, as I've told you privately, um, I, I love this book. And it is really, it's gripping. Um, the, the first question that popped into my mind is a strange, perhaps a strange question, which is, why do people who know better nevertheless continue to insist 
that the United States is a nation of immigrants. Why is that such a dominant part of the narrative? Well, thank you, Bill. Um, of course, I um, I asked you to read several iterations of parts of the book and um, really appreciate um, suggestions that you gave me. Um, well, that's the question I I really wanted to figure out myself uh, in writing the book, because that um, that idea of it being a nation of immigrants, um, I thought it was from the very beginning. Um, but when I started doing research, I found it was very recent. And I think that that explains it. It started in 1958 with um, John F. Uh, writing a book called um, uh, A Nation of Immigrants, where he proclaims it. So he actually invented, or whoever wrote it for him, invented the term. I think Arthur Schlesinger had something to do with it as his um, guru historian. But it was in 1958 when he was a senator and he was running, going to run for president as an Irish Catholic. And uh, that was new in the history of the United States because every president uh, had been uh, either Anglo or Scots-Irish, uh, original settlers, either, either those who founded the United States or um, their offspring. And so he, uh, I think he created a propaganda that made the Irish so lovable in the book. And he basically really only deals uh, with, with uh, Irish famine refugees uh, finding solace in the United States. A very, very true story. But then expanding that to um, the idea of a nation of immigrants. So I think it did start that way. But I think the question is, why was it so embraced? Um, to the point that it's even lost that it it was invented in 1958 and by John F. Kennedy. I frankly didn't know that myself until uh, until I um, um, you know learned that, and then it it kind of made sense because the competition with the Soviet Union was already beginning the Cold War. Um, and had already begun, of course, the McCarthy hearings and everything else in 1958. So this competition, um, you know, the television had just come in and it was showing live, well, not live, but delayed live uh, pictures of um, heavily armed Southern policemen and sheriffs beating up and, and civilians. Um, beating up uh, black demonstrators in the South. And um, it was a, uh, you know, it, it was not good for the propaganda of the United States was the uh, benefactor of the world and the, um, uh, the uh, midwife for national liberation movements that Africans can trust them. Asians. Um, and so I think that it was a 
part of the propaganda that was generated to change the subject from um, the history of slavery, settler colonialism, uh, to look, we're a nation of immigrants. And in some ways it worked. I think it worked with liberals in the United States to a great extent. And I think it, you know, it camouflages uh, settler colonialism, of course, because settlers are not immigrants. Uh, immigrants, I mean, they loosely be called that, but in fact, immigrants are people who come to an already formed society they have to adjust to, whereas settlers are people who create that society, um, are in the process of creating it. Uh, and it's very clear, especially today with the white nationalist movements or people who are mostly descended from original settlers or have been Americanized to such that they're accepted as such other Europeans that weren't Anglo or Scots. So I think that um, it's held dear as a, uh, um, as a way of not dealing with reality. Mm. So I want to uh, take us back and I want to ask a, a sort of deep historical question um, that I feel like your book responds to, but I'd like to hear you talk about it for, for our viewers. You, you know, I, uh, I grew up at a point when it was very common to hear people when they were talking about what we now call people of color, they'd say, Black people and, or it was earlier, Negroes and, or then it was African-Americans and. And the discourse in the United States around race has largely been Black-white. Um, you and um, several other uh, authors on the left, particularly out of the indigenous movements and the Chicano movement have challenged that entire framework. And, and I, I wanted to ask, why do you think, in light of the history that you've identified, why do you think, nevertheless, the racial discourse has for so long been black-white, as opposed to understanding the, more, the, the greater complexity of racist oppression and settler colonialism? Yeah, it's, um, of course, I think um, the Civil War, um, which was a very bloody destructive war that didn't resolve the division um, and the um, failure of Reconstruction and also the, um, the visibility of activism um, the you know W. B. Du Bois and um, and others who um, were setting. I mean, he he was you know had a PhD in history and is also in, in law. And um, so I think there was a body of work. Um, it also existed with indigenous people during that same period. 
you know, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, Native uh, scholars and thinkers and writers who simply were not known at the same level, you know, to influence the academy. Um, So I think the... um, it's also that those historians and um, civil rights leaders, it took a while, it, it took a minute, <laughs> I'm saying for even Martin Luther King, but it was just a minute. It was in 1963, actually, that he uh, pronounced this amazing thing, you know, about the genocide against the Native people. And then started building relationships. And by the time of the Poor People's March, actually had put um, Native people in the front of the march. And when they marched, um, uh, the march um, from Washington, they went first to the Department of Interior and put down a, a statement about the colonization of, of Native people. So. I think that that um, that that and other you know things of the civil rights movement and there was a civil rights movement of course going on with Mexican people, Native people, uh, Asian Chinese um, were all you know after World War II and even before um, active, but. I think none got quite the attention, and of course the um, uh, the brutality that was taking place. Um, Native people were living in um, very dire conditions, but it, um, they were producing. There were, were you know a, a significant number of intellectuals who were in the 1950s uh, formulating. Um, plans that then developed into the Red Power Movement in the 1960s. But I think the historians, you know, being myself trained in history in the mid-1960s, it was um, history departments simply did not deal with um, the real history of the United States. So Black history became um, extremely important field and others followed uh, other people's histories. But the idea of settler colonialism did not exist in history departments. And most, um, it doesn't exist in most history departments today. Although the Ivy Leagues are slowly beginning to um, uh, change and kind of catch up uh, with the field of um, uh, settler colonialism, but it's taken a long, long time. Here we are in 2021, and um, this has been, you know, 50 years of a, a lot of production of literature and. Um, development of Native scholars. So I think it's no um, accident that, you know, it takes a long time from history departments, history production, to then dribble down into textbooks 
um, and um, the way our textbooks work in the United States, um, unfortunately, the Texas Board of Education more or less controls what gets put out as official texts in very in different states of um, the country. Uh, so very little of this uh, has dribbled down, but educators themselves, K-12 educators, I know when my book, Indigenous People's History of the United States, was adapted, not by me, but by uh, Jean Mendoza and um, Debbie Reese, it was so welcomed by teachers, just overwhelming, um, and librarians, because there was a hunger for it, but it, it didn't really exist. Um, such a you know a book for young people but it's still not you know made its way any of that set of colonialism i doubt that it's in any textbooks that's used in any place so it's i understand why people generally don't even people in law school and get phds or medical degrees uh you know don't have a clue <laughs> about what settler colonialism is, what colonialism is even. Um, so it's, um, and it, it is really, then doesn't get into politics very much. You know, it, um, when it does, it's always a racialization of, of Native Americans. And of course, there are you know, more than 300 uh, different Native nations and communities, they have different languages, different cultures, and um, they have land base. They have, have and of course, lost most of their land base, but do have land bases, and they're still living under colonialism structurally. They don't own that land. It's, it's mm -hmm. not communal property. It's under uh, trust uh, under the Secretary of Interior, who now happens to be a Native person, Deb Holland, which is unusual, and uh, we'll see what, what good that does. Mm -hmm. The um, uh, Raoul Peck uh, made this incredible film, and you played a major role in this uh, on HBO, Exterminated All the Brutes. Uh, and for the viewers, if you haven't seen it, you got to see it four parts it's it's gripping uh, as gripping as your book Roxanne um, and one of the questions which may seem naive has to do with genocide um, and uh, so so I believe in the first hundred years that you're uh, after Europeans arrived in the western hemisphere 80 percent of the indigenous population was wiped out um, and most, uh, many of the references we have to the relationship of the European invasion to the indigenous essentially suggests that, you know, that was like an unfortunate result of disease. Um, the question I have is, what's the relationship between genocide and settler colonialism? Is, is settler colonialism, does that, is it unusual? for settler colonialism to have uh, a genocidal component? Or is this more frequent uh, than just the experience here in the United States? Yeah, it's a, it's a form of colonialism 
Western European colonialism that um, set off by um, uh, the Portuguese, the, the type of wool that, um, that allowed the, the Portuguese to, to colonize all of Africa and enslave all of the people, followed by Columbus voyage and a papal bull a year after that landing to do the same, give Spain, the Western hemisphere, and the right to enslave all the people there. Um, and the first century of, of uh, Spanish, or almost a century, to 1588, um, it was, you know, the native people were enslaved. Uh, so that, you know, that idea of genocide only equaling, equaling uh, death, that is killing, murder, is, is, is not accurate. Um, most of the people, Native people, didn't actually die. They were transported, just like Africans were transported later <coughs> to the Americas as enslaved people, Indians were transported, like the Natchez Nation in the Mississippi Valley, descendants of the Cohote, the huge uh, uh, civilization in the Mississippi Valley. They may have numbered, no one really knows, they may have numbered two, three million people. It's a very rich area, of course, you know, the greatest farmland in the world, and they were agrarian. They were almost all, they seemed extinct, but they weren't extinct. They were transported by the Spanish around the Cape of Good Hope and up to Peru, the mines in Peru, to work in Peru. So the difference is in Latin America, there's a very large presence of so-called mestizos mm -hmm. everywhere. And but especially in the non-settler colonies, of course, Argentina, Chile, uh, Paraguay, uh, Uruguay were late colonized when the Spanish took up settler colonialism because it was working so well in the United States. There you have really killing people off, driving them out, just like the United States. So you have also the Western Central America, all the Nahua-speaking people, possibly two, three million people, also deported to the mines of Peru. You have people all over Mexico removed to be other places and losing their land, losing their identity, their languages. So that's, that's one thing, but that wasn't settler colonialism, but is a form of genocide, just like enslavement in Africa is a form of genocide. Mm -hmm. Because the Genocide Convention, which is the only thing we have, it was invented uh, in 1948, the term to deal with and uh, eliminate uh, and prevent the future, any future genocide. It's actually a prevention uh, treaty in the United Nations to do everything possible to prevent the, Hol the Holocaust from happening again, but also any genocide. So the terms of the Genocide Treaty 
covenant is the only thing we have to assess past genocides. There's a um, there the the genocide convention doesn't go in effect until a country signs it. So the United States didn't sign it, didn't ratify it. The Senate didn't ratify it till 1988, 40 years after it was formed. So any genocide charge that comes has to come after that. But I think that's still possible. Uh, but historically, we can use the Genocide Convention to see what ha happened in the past. And that was Ralph Lincoln's goal, you know, in the book he wrote about it, to be able to look into the past because clearly the genocide against Jews had its history of pogroms throughout Eastern Europe. And that was really a, kind of a form of settler colonialism in some ways. So settler colonialism is, is the minority kind of uh, colonialism, although it has huge impacts because it's produced the United States of America, the most powerful richest country in the world by far. Um, but it, it, it originated with the, well, in, in Iberia with the, um, uh, the elimination of the um, Muslims and Jews, ethnically cleansing, taking their land, taking their uh, beautiful civilization, uh, appropriating it and driving them out. Um, not one Jew or more had to be killed for that, for one to look at that and say that's genocide, because the Genocide Convention specifically says it's not just about killing or mass killing. No one has to die, necessarily. It's, it's removed, it's creating conditions that make it impossible for a group of people to maintain their existence, including their culture. And it names things like removing children from the group. You know, the boarding schools in Canada, the United States, really throughout the Americas, that's an act of genocide. So there are several acts. One is killing, killing large numbers of people is one, but it's only one of many. But that's the one taken out and then disputed. No, genocide didn't work. People died of, uh, of disease or the argument that I've given that not enough people give of the deportation. But I think we have to reflect on that and also see what happened in Western Africa and then deep into Southern into Angola uh, and other sites of the the. Um, deportation of Africans to that this was this is a genocidal act and a, an act of colonialism. Um, so yeah, I um, settler colonialism when it is really got its form with British in colonizing Ireland. Mm -hmm. But it was a stage of that colonization when Cromwell created the the idea of Ulster, the Ulster Northern Ireland, Ireland to clean, ethnically cleanse it to the extent possible and re 
place it with Anglo and Scots settlers. So this is where the Scots-Irish come from. My father's family descended from these settlers who were given free land in Northern Ireland that was taken from Irish, indigenous Irish. These were among the primary settlers of um, that came to North America, uh, especially in the in the period of the early 1700s. So Appalachia is, and I I have a whole section in the book on settler colonialism in Appalachia and the Scots Irish. Uh, so that um, the replacement of the Cherokees in the Appalachia ethnically cleansing. Then there's a certain kind of self-indigenizing that goes on with settler colonialism. The first settlers, they, they're the, you know, transform themselves ideologically into being the original pioneers, you know, in other words, the indigenous people. They, they're not saying they're native or even part native. No, they are the, the first pioneers. and. They're treated that way, and very mystical thing about Appalachia, you know, because mm-hmm. it's a heartland of settler colonialism. And it's it's really interesting what you're describing, because um, you see that in South Africa, uh, as you said, Ireland, uh, Israel, Australia. This is. Which I never really thought about exactly in those terms until reading reading your book. Um, I'm curious, you know, it's it's interesting. I feel uh, it, it it almost will sound naive to uh, the viewers, but growing up, um, manifest destiny was something that I was taught to be proud of. I mean, which is almost embarrassing to say now, right? But but in in school. Uh, in elementary school, et cetera, I was, you know, this was something we were supposed to be proud of, the expansion of the United States, and this is how this became a great country. And I was, in reading your book, I was thinking about um, what you do so well of connecting settler colonialism, manifest destiny, and U.S. foreign policy, the evolution of U.S. foreign policy. And I, I would appreciate if you talk with us a little bit about those connections, about how this evolution, how this unfolds, because uh, it just it, it it makes perfect sense, but it's not something that a lot of people necessarily think about. Yeah, I think it has really hurt um, our um, <clears throat> left movements for generations, um, anti-imperialist movements. I. Um, I think you take the Vietnam War um, It's a huge mass movement that I was involved in um, that and millions and millions of people were in the United States. Um, and as an anti-imperialist, uh, um, which I had formulated in myself before, even before having to do with Cuba and um, other things, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s before um, before the 
invasion of Vietnam, the war, counterinsurgency had been going on all through the 50s. Um, I thought this was an anti-imperialist movement that was going to continue, that we, oh, we succeeded, that war stopped. Um, now we have to deal with, you know, the United States was already in Afghanistan in the 1950s. It was already in, you know, all over the place and, and uh, counterinsurgency in Africa. Um, and it didn't suddenly, it was only Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda, you know, getting very small audiences talking after 1973, when the peace pact, even before, when it, all they did was stop, you know, bring ground troops home and, and have the air war um, and killed almost as many people as in the preceding many years through air war. So this, where did it go? You look around, you know, by 1978, there's no more, no longer an anti-imperialist movement. So then we had this bump of um, Central America, which I was very involved in, uh, the Contra War, opposing that. But at the same time, this thing was, you know, uh, this counterinsurgency was going on in Afghanistan and we weren't paying any attention to it. And I have to say, I, I, I knew about it, but I was totally involved in, in uh, ending the Contra War. But I had to start, uh, it was actually in 1985 that I sat down and I said, I have to figure this out. It was really the beginning of what became an indigenous people's history. I have to figure this out. So at first I called it uh, military history of the United States because and what I figured out, I, I mean, I, um, it seems like I should have put it together before, was this hundred year war from uh, 1776 to 1890, more than a hundred years, incessant war to take the continent. And that war was against of course, Native peoples, Native nations who fought back, and Mexicans taking half of Mexico. So it, those wars are so played down in U.S. history. Uh, when I wrote the chapter on the U.S. invasion, occupation, and annexation of Mexico, all, I mean, the literature is useless. It's jokey. Oh, it was just, you know, a mess and it was this and that. And I mean, literally, it's treated, the, uh, there really aren't even that many books, that, that many, much material that's uh, worthy of using. The best source is actually the U.S. Army, and it's, it's actually online fully. Um, the U.S. Army's history of the Mexican War is better than any historian has written because it just gives the facts. And they're very proud of, you know, the horrible, violent war that it was and the Marine invasion through Veracruz. Um, so it it's, um, and other than that and the Civil War, really the other wars, the invasion of, of um, North Africa, 
1806, you know, the, the so-called Barbary Wars. They're also kind of jokey. And it's like, oh, they were fighting pirates. No, oh, they were fighting Arabs. <laughs> uh, that's where the Marines get their song from the shores, from the halls of Montezuma, Mexico, to the shores of Tripoli. That's, that was their first mission. So the song itself, which they're so proud of, and they still sing, and memorize uh, tells you, you know, about the foreign wars of the United States from the very beginning. But the wars against Native people, they, they were foreign wars, but the United States was the foreign power. So it's, you know, it's different, but it is what formed the U.S. military. And it's what formed the um, counterinsurgency. And what counterinsurgency is is basically not war. It's not under the laws of war. It's not a fight, a fair fight with other armed soldiers or defenders. It is against civilians. It's invasion of communities, burning their crops, burning their storage of food, um, uh, denying their food supplies, starving them out killing women and children, burning their homes. Uh, that's counterinsurgency. So all of these world wars um, against Native people were counterinsurgent wars. And every war the United States is involved in turns into counterinsurgency. It's like a knee-jerk DNA reaction. Until people become aware of it and the military itself becomes aware of it, it's going to continue. You know, it's not going to end with a withdrawal of Afghanistan from Afghanistan. The U.S. is everywhere. They're in the Philippines. They've always been there, you know, for decades uh, doing this. They're all over Africa. They have 850 bases around the world. So it's, and we don't have an anti-war movement. So I think that's, you know, settler colonialism being hidden. Those wars are never dealt with in texts on military history, the so-called Indian wars. Uh, they're only dealt with by these Western, you know, kind of um, um, triumphalist, you know, conquest of the West. But these wars began on the Atlantic coast. They did not begin in the West. You know, the West is the Atlantic coast. And those wars continued from 1607 uh, to 1890, when they had indeed uh, disarmed every single Native person and herded them into what were uh, first concentration camps. The... Um I want to look at the implications of what you've covered for today. Uh, I, have, I have a host of historical questions, but I, I want to hold on those for a second and, and jump forward. Uh, we have seen, as you know, the rise of a very virulent right-wing populist movement in the United States that includes uh, fascists. Um, 
And central to this movement seems to be the notion of a restoration of a white republic, a neo-Confederate vision. I mean, there's a variety of different ways of describing it. Um, But it's, it's, it's open um, and it's offering a challenge to the kind of narrative that you're putting forward, including the most obvious example being this whole ridiculousness around so-called critical race theory. I mean, as I like to say, the right wing knows about as much about critical race theory as I do about the other side of the moon. Uh, <laughs> but, they, but they use the term as a way of essentially dismissing a real comprehensive discussion of the history of the United States. And this is not new. I mean, as you were pointing out earlier, um, the but what what um, what about this issue of this white republic, and what about this right wing populist movement? How does this relate to the themes that you're raising in this book? Well, you know, I think um, in a sense they're right that this country was formed as a white republic. Is this no getting around it? They were all white, you know, who founded the United States. They wrote a constitution that was for uh, and about white people. Um, so they cling to that, that, you know, that, that originalism of the Supreme Court, you know, it's in the Supreme Court now. I mean, they, they don't go out with with guns and do an insurrection, but kind of worse, you know, they make decisions that are of the white republic. Um, they're originalists um, that the Constitution, before even the Ten Amendments, the real hardcore originalists claim, like the John Birch Society, um, that uh, this is, you know, that this is... Uh, um, citizenship was only for property-owning white males. So I don't know how um, that can be denied, that these people, okay, were originalists, we are um, we're constitutionalists, we can't... It's so hard to change the Constitution that it's impossible, really, in any, you know, in any, any uh, deep way to change the, the U.S. Con- the Electoral College or those things that keep it a white republic. Um, so these people have the Constitution on their side. They have history on their side. And as long as people don't say you know, the truth about the founding of the United States, they're going to have um, power. And they are a considerable force. We we can, you know, Trump, the one favor Trump did for us, you know, we want to really face reality, is he, he gave us a, a, a head count. And it's pretty frightening, the head count of people who voted for him, and especially who still support him. Um, And 
that's like tens of millions of people. You know, it's no small number. We on the left are minuscule in comparison, even if you count, you know, kind of left liberals among us. We're, uh, at, and they're heavily armed. Um, and there are absolutely no gun laws anymore um, or gun control of how you use them. So we're in a, you know, we're in a fix because we will not deal with this history and not even on the left, you know, to really uh, come to grips with it. And um, I'm not very optimistic about where we're headed because of that. But I keep writing books. <laughs> to you, you do. <laughs> um, and I have not, um, there's some authors who will go nameless who's at the end of the book I'm uh, that uh, I'm ready to kill myself. Um, but, uh, but at the, uh, after reading your books, uh, that's not how I feel. And, but I do want to return to that in a second, a question of uh, the future, but I want to ask you one thing we got one question, but I'm going to ask this first about uh, you. Were, we were talking a little bit about the border situation uh, prior to this uh, program starting. And I'm curious, using the framework of your analysis, uh, the framework that you've, you've presented, what is a progressive approach towards borders? And particularly in, uh, I don't mean that at a general level. I mean, that that's a good, that'd be a good question too. But in the context of the United States, what is a progressive position? Well, it's, um, I think the majority of um, the population, of course, is anti-immigrant, which is, you know, inherited Alexander Hamilton, for instance. They, you know, the musical um, that portrayed him as an immigrant, which he wasn't, as a British, British citizen that, you know, moved from one colony to the other. Um, and helped found the United States. He was no immigrant by any means. He was a settler, um, and uh, but but changing that, it just made uh, liberals and you know a lot of leftists and many many uh, African American activists um, just in love with you know with this idea uh, and that was kind of the classic nation nation of immigrants uh, musical mm -hmm. so this is um, this this is the but there's not many voices outside the long um, the suffering immigrant rights community, which is very strong in California. Uh, we have a pretty open border, but no one, not many people come, you know, it's a long, long trip to Tijuana as compared to Del Rio or, you know, the tip of Texas. It's a, you know, deep into Mexican territory. Uh, so it's a long, long trip to, to come through Tijuana. But so I think we, we deal with it in many ways, and, and also the Asian uh, immigrant rights groups are very, very strong. But in the rest of the country, I feel like there's um, 
almost, you know, progressives kind of turn away from it. They're ashamed of it and condemn it, you know. The, but every administration in U.S. history is the same when it comes to immigration. It means exclusion. That was the first immigration law in the country, 1884, exclusion of Chinese. The second one was exclusion of all Asians, exclusion, 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 contingency. Um, so this is, you know, and then very carefully manicuring it. So it's if certain jobs need to be filled, you know, the way that Mexican immigrant, Mexican braceros, Mexican migrant workers um, who come to to. Um, uh, make money and send remittances back home, they get locked in because of the locked border now because they know they can't come back the next season and and work they and yet they're needed in the you know in agriculture so it's it's to keep them uh, without any agency at all um really almost like endangered people and so the i of course, the, I know many progressives in California who are involved in almost all of us, one way or another, in immigrant rights and open border. I think because of the history and the uh, invasion and occupation of Mexico and the, I believe, illegal treaty, uh, you know, a gun to the head of the president of Mexico to sign it. A treaty of cession of half of Mexico is not a legitimate treaty. And if Mexico had any power and wouldn't be horribly punished, they could go to the world court and get that decision um, that it's illegal, has to be renegotiated. At least the Channel Islands, which were not even included in it, but the United States simply claims it. So that, you know, I, I do think that border. And that's the one that's, you know, a um, wound that mm -hmm. has not been healed from U.S. colonialism. Um, that we saw a moment with the airport thing with Trump. He sort of manufactured it, you know, to stop all Muslims from coming in. But actually, the airports, they as uh, horrible, the things that happened, they put people in prisons, you know, that are around the airports. And that's not that's not even seen, you know, because it's in different places. It's at JFK and SFO and Alice Fort Worth and Atlanta. And it's not so visible as, as the border. And and of course Texas and Arizona being um, you know very right wing states and anti-immigrant. Um, on top of it, you know, uh, condemning uh, to condemning anyone who comes in. So um, I think we have to develop, uh, you know, again, this history, the knowledge of it, the exclusion, um, the, um, uh, you know, the perm permissiveness that allows for undocumented people. There's always complaints about it, but it's very useful for contractors and others who want to pay pittances and have no union, you know, intervening. Um, 
to have contingent, you know, workers who have very contingent existence and are trying to send remittances back home. Um, so I think progressives basically don't have outside of California. I really think there isn't a stance and it's avoided. I never hear the same DSA people, which I admire very much, you know, what's developing with DSA outside of California DSA. I don't hear very much about immigration policy or they accept outrage, you know, Mm-hmm. How can you not be outraged seeing what was happening with the Haitians on the border and Central Americans? So we have a question from Edward who asks, how can we take revolutionary steps in our day-to-day lives and is electoral politics a path forward to decolonization and dismantling capitalism? Taking on capitalism you know, the United States was the first state founded as a capitalist state. Uh, there's this term I use and explain in the book, uh, the fiscal military state. Uh, a capitalist state made for war. And that is the United States. So what we can do in our daily lives is educate ourselves about this history and tell everyone we know to set our families down and say, this is how it is. We have to figure something out from these premises and not, you know, not the premises we're working on, that we can have this vote or that president or this or that person in Senate, and it will make a difference. Um, but really to um, form community groups that will discuss, read, you know, not just my books, there's a lot of literature available. There are are dozens of incredible books um, that have come out in the past decade or so by immigrants that are so interesting, uh, mostly third world immigrants from South Asia and Africa. And, and uh, and East Asia as well, the Philippines. <laughs> I mean, really uh, everywhere, Latin America. And what's really remarkable about them, and it really enriched my research, is they all seem to have a, a knowledge of settler colonialism and that they know that coming, they have to avoid that. But they still have their demands because they're here. And as they say, we're here because you were there. But I want to just, I want to follow up on that. Um, There seems to be a post-1965 phenomenon among, um, when I say 65, because of the dramatic changes in immigration in 65. of people that have come to the United States uh, from the global south that frequently have very contradictory views about issues like race, um, citizenship, and um, sort of the racial pyramid of the United States. What do you make of that? 
Well, that's a part of, you know, this literature that's coming out that I don't think represents, I mean, these are mostly scholars um, or writers who are, who are very aware, but in general, immigrants who come uh, from the global south don't know anything about the United States, even if they think they do, because people in the United States don't know anything about the United States. Why should they? know anything um, coming to this country. They know the mythology, mainly. Um, and, you know, that it is, <laughs> they'll be welcomed and it's a nation of immigrants. Um, but they, um, yeah, they do. Um, um, there, there is very interesting, you know, in the chapter on um, arrivals on um, uh, um, enslavement um, and the experience of Africans and, and how African Americans uh, or Black Americans, descendants of slavery, how uh, they fit into the scheme. And of course, they're not immigrants and they're not settlers. But Africans who come from Africa are immigrants, but they come from a place where Black is normal. It's the normal thing. And then they Often are the ones who come as refugees, which are many, uh, they get they get relocated into black communities, you know, as if that they will feel comfortable there. But they don't, you know, I mean, because the they just don't see skin color as as their defining personality. And sometimes these are areas with, you know, with a lot of. Uh, policing and crime and they get beat up you know they learn pretty quickly well you are black whether you, whether you like it or not you know you're not Samoan anymore um and um but some who've written you know do explain how they come with the same racism against black americans that you know the the anti-black racism is almost a prerequisite was it to be an immigrant in the United States? And I think that that's really um, an important aspect that, that um, you know, James Baldwin uh, expressed so, you know, in so many different, different forms and others are. And I think, you know, some African immigrants do become aware. The ones I read, of course, were were aware of this and these contradictions. But even some Black Asians, you know, also, they had their revolution. You know, I mean, as poor as it is, is that that self confidence that, in fact, most Caribbeans have, either being majority populations in the you know in the other islands and being the first you know national liberation revolution that was successful, that's an enormous amount of pride, you know, and then they come and they, um, I, I've, I've noticed that, or I became aware at some point how many leaders of the SNCC and, you know, the Black Power Movement were, had Caribbean lineage and Haitian, you know, including Haitian. And I think that, you know, that makes sense in mm -hmm. a way. Um, yes, 
So there is a um, a desire by any immigrant to simply fit in and for their children to fit in. So I think that that is the then the Americanization process that I I go through in some detail, maybe too much in the book of, of how do we get this group of inter- immigrants to become Americanized. And many of them now look to the right wing. Well, this seems like a better thing to bet on, you know, because they don't most, um, I mean, you know, the Silicon Valley tech engineers, they're, you know, more upper class who come, but most, you know, are, and most of the refugees, and of course, immigrants uh, from Central America or Mexico uh, are very poor, you know, come for jobs mm-hmm. and to for their children to better their lives and maybe able to buy a house or whatever. So fitting in is a, pre, you know, a demand. And I suppose it is in some ways in all countries, but I don't think it's as aggressive in terms of, uh, it probably is in the settler states like New Zealand and Australia. Uh, but I, I don't feel that about, you know, I met a lot of immigrants working in Europe, you know, UN work and um, from everywhere, a lot of Turkish, especially Turkish workers that were brought in, but also Spanish workers brought to Switzerland. And um, I, I never really felt, you know, that they had this, um, had to go through these horrible conditioning and seasoning and, and um, uh, jumping through hoops, you know, maybe the, the paperwork, but not necessarily um, a, a uh, of course, African immigrants, uh, uh, you know, have, that's different. I think that there is that, but in immigration in general, I don't think so. You know, it's, it's funny. I, um, I have, said many times that all immigrants to the United States are taught from the very beginning they should stay as far away from African Americans and Native Americans as they can. Yeah. And distinct, you know, and and I think, and this is the paradox, and it's something that many African Americans, U.S. African Americans don't understand about our interaction with African immigrants precisely the point that you were raising before. They may come with the same skin color, but that's not their, uh, their point of reference, unless they come perhaps from South Africa. But um, that's not their point of reference. And they too are instructed, uh, stay away. A, a friend of mine who is from Nigeria told me a story about how uh, she was with a friend of hers who uh, made the distinction saying, well, you're not like them, you're a Nigerian. Mm -hmm. And them meaning people like me, right? Uh, (laughs) So it's, it's, no, this is is critically important. Um, There's another question we've got uh, here, which is, what do you think about the growing movement to repatriate native lands, for example, national park lands, and also uh, anything beyond that? How does that relate to responding to settler colonialism? 
the national parks? Repatriate, yeah, native lands. Oh, repatriating native land. Yeah. Yeah, land back is the main, you know, demand of progressive native um, uh, organizations now, like the Red Nation in uh, that has now chapters all over the country. It started in New Mexico, Arizona. Um, Land back, uh, you know, for one thing, the national parks, everyone knows of beautiful places. That's why they're, they're enchanting. Yeah, that's because they were the um, most sacred sites, the religious sites of Native peoples, Yosemite. Uh, they weren't, people lived there, but also it was people gathered in these places for ceremonies. The Black Hills, uh, Yellowstone. Um, Grand Canyon. I mean, it, it's just obvious that these would be the most important. So they were all taken without treaties. They were just, uh, you know, and mainly um, designated as such uh, by especially that racist Theodore Roosevelt. So I don't see any reason why. Uh, I know David Truer has written, wrote an essay in the Atlantic. Um, he's a away from Minnesota. Um, of, um, you know, uh, making a case for restoration. He wanted it to be in the hands of um, Native organization, maybe like the National Congress of American Indian. But I think it should be um, uh, the specific Native nation that it was taken from. It should be restored to them, I think. But I don't see any reason in the world why it shouldn't be and why they should not be the stewards who make the rules about who can visit and when they can visit. Uh, they would obviously have a, an economic incentive to have visitors, but they could also close the gates when they're having a ceremony, like Taos Pueblo does. You just... You go there to see Taos Pueblo most of the year, but you go there at a certain time in November or in June, you know, July, the solstice, that the gates are closed. Sorry, you can't come in. And uh, because they're having their ceremonies, why not? You know, what would this, I mean, it's, it's, why couldn't that be a, um, uh, something that could be done that's very clear and that would begin the restoration of land that was not taken under treaties. And almost, I would say 99% of the land that was taken without treaties was under federal jurisdiction or state jurisdiction. It's not in private property. A lot of it is leased. The reason the federal government can't sell that land, which, you know, capitalists keep saying, you know, let's privatize all these federal land. Well, it's a little naive because under U.S. laws, U.S. laws, they can't sell what they don't own. The treaty was a contract, mm. was, was a deed. It was deeded over to the United States when there was a treaty. And some of these were forced treaties. Mm -hmm. But most of those federal lands were taken simply without treaties, and they don't own it. The federal government doesn't own it, so they can't sell it. 
They can't, under their own laws, they can't sell what they don't own. Mm. So give it back mm. to native people. <laughs> That's fascinating. I, I, would, I would doubt most people have any idea about that. Because you're right, we, all, we, we hear, and particularly these right-wing nuts uh, who have been talking about taking this federal land, right. claiming, right, claiming that they, it's really their land, Um, like we saw in in Oregon. Um, But very few people know what you just laid out, which is fascinating. Um, One of the the questions that was raised, uh, Roxanne, is that uh, someone, I think probably many people, want to know how to access more books on settler colonialism. And uh, my easy response is people should read your book and then look at the Look at the notes, uh, and you'll find an incredible bibliography there of yeah. of books and and articles on this. Uh, but if there's, um, I, I'm just curious, is there a particular book or two that you would refer uh, the read the the viewers to the to sort of um, complement what your your uh, you you've written in, in your book? Well, I would um, recommend that people go to, um, there's a journal called Settler Studies, and it um, it is accessible on sites like Academia, um, JSTOR, J-S-T-O-R, those websites, but um, journals are on there, but you have to subscribe or go to a, a library. You know, mm-hmm. go to any university library and they would have settler studies. There you find dozens and dozens of different writers uh, from Australia, New Zealand, um, uh, Argentina, you know, settler colonies, South Africa, uh, Canada, U.S. And um, some are very theoretical. Some are case studies. Uh, you know, every every. Um, uh, Everyone is is um, is uh, uh, you know a new something new. There's also the um, the Native American Indigenous uh, Studies uh, Journal uh, NASA, which is a a U.S. organization, but also has a lot of articles on other other or state. Uh, and have conferences there. And um, that journal is also uh, just filled with, you know, with great literature. But you can actually go online also and, you know, just Google Settler Studies. And a lot of these things came up because the authors can, you know, put them up online. They're not prevented from that, the authors themselves. So you don't have to go to the journal. So that's what I I do, you know, just Google and find all these articles. There are some outstanding authors. Um, There's, um, I would say, the best recent publication is Mahmoud Mandami's Neither Settler, Neither Native Nor Settler, which is um, a study of United States uh, South Africa and Israel. Uh, it's not a comparative study; it's three case studies, mm-hmm. and it is the 
really the most brilliant. It was published just last year. And it is uh, brilliant. He writes also beautifully. You know, he's a scholar, he's a mm-hmm. professor at, at Columbia, but uh, he's Ugandan, so he has that, you know, uh, British writing, but it's, um, he's poetic. I mean, it's just a pleasure to read, and it's such heavy material that he may, you, you don't want to put it down. It's like reading a great novel or something. <laughs> you don't want to put the book down and can't wait to get back at it. So I think that is the best thing for people to start with. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, I love him as an author. Uh, we only have a few more minutes and uh, a couple of questions I wanted to throw. One that um, it, it, this is very interesting because it made me think about the discussion you have about Chicanos and indigenous. Um, the, the question is, as a Mexican-American who's lucky enough to know their indigenous heritage, should I reconnect even if my immediate family has neglected this side of ourselves for so long? Is this decolonization? Well, I think, um, of course, like I, I, was, I, I was saying about Spanish colonization, moving people around, a lot of people became mestizos. There's still DNA of not just Indians in Peru, but they don't. Maybe with DNA, people could actually trace their their origins. It's not that specific yet. Find um, mm. you know specific Native nations um, in in DNA tests, but uh, so mestizos um, are all over the uh, non-settler colonial parts of the Americas, and um, that. Um, I know that many people, especially in Mexico, are able to, well, and, and, and the Andes, are able to, um, much more able to trace their roots than, say, U.S. people who have, you know, some, or including African-Americans who have um, Native heritage but don't know what it is and, mm-hmm. you know, don't know what Native nation and the only definition of in the United States, a, a Native person is a person who has tribal ties um, that are claimed by, you know, not what uh, the per- person claims, but what the tribe claims if they claim you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you seek out, you think you found it and you go to them, well, well, they will find a way to incorporate you if it checks out, you know, but. Uh, but for Mexican heritage, I think it's more complicated, even when one knows the heritage, it's important in Mexico. But uh, basically here, that person is an immigrant, uh, Mexican immigrant, and not indigenous to uh, what is now the United States. So I think that the whole concept of Indianity, when it's um, when it's it's the dominant um, factor, is you know is another way of erasing Native people because um, they barely hang on, you know, as Native people, especially in in Canada and the United States, where they're fewer. 
um, or in Argentina, you know, wow. Uruguay, uh, these ethnically cleansed uh, in uh, parts of Chile, um, is very, very difficult to hang on to the um, um, to the heritage and and to um, be uh, acknowledged. So that um, that I think you know I think people have to learn about that and educate themselves and not flippantly say, "Oh, I'm I'm uh, Toltec. Uh, I'm, my roots are Toltec, even though I don't speak Toltec. I wasn't raised there." traced it there, so I'm now in the United States, and I'm, in, I'm indigenous. Mm-hmm. Now, indigenous means you're indigenous to a place, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, you're not indigenous to the United States, so you have to behave like an immigrant, you know, and be respectful of Native people in the United States. Very helpful. Um, we're. I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're... Uh, we have about five minutes, um, and it, it's uh, building off of a, a question that was uh, raised from one of the viewers, and it goes back to something we were we were talking about earlier, somewhat joking, somewhat seriously, about the future, mm-hmm. and um, and this uh, viewer asks whether there's a way to improve the United States, or does there need to be some sort of radical change in how the government is run? before we have any hope of improvement. I want to broaden that to just ask, um, what is the, what's the direction that we should be going? When you, you know, building off of your analysis, what do we do differently as progressive people to transform uh, the United States? And, uh, you know, with this analysis of settler colonialism and a settler state, Well, I think I think if we could, you know, if um, the progressives could bring themselves to not be lazy and understand settler colonialism, uh, it's not in any of the left traditions in the United States to have that understanding. And that's maybe why we fail to really have, you know, a revolutionary kind of left because they're not dealing with. I mean, when you deal with um, Marxism, and I consider myself a, a, a Marxist, um, the 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 core of Marxism is historical materialism, mm-hmm. and that is, I mean, what Marx did was analyze what in you know from the eighteen forties to eighteen eighties, his lifetime, exactly what was happening in especially Germany and England. And his analysis is is brilliant. But taking that analysis and applying it to a totally different country, even at that same time, any remarks he made about the United States writing in the Herald Tribune are just ridiculous because he didn't know anything whatsoever. He didn't know anything about China. Mm -hmm. You know, he borrowed this racist terminology of the of the. uh, Oriental despotism, mm-hmm. you know, um, German, uh, the German writer. Um, so 
he's if you want to learn about Europe and and how how to analyze um, uh, the proletariat there, but in a settler colonialism, in some ways you don't don't have a proletariat. You do economically, but you don't have the consciousness of proletariat. Because the desire is if you don't own property, you want your offspring to. If you're a worker in the United States, mm-hmm. that you're not, you don't want to stay a worker. You don't want mm-hmm. your children to have to be workers. Uh, you want them to go to college, you know, and get a job and do something else and support you in your old age. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so workers' consciousness is very. What we had, you know, that booming kind of unionization movement in the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s, Socialist Party, uh, the Communist Party forming into the 20s, was was mostly immigrants from Europe, many of them already socialists, being driven out, you know, politically even. Um, and Jewish people were uh, experiencing pogroms. Um, so when we really break it down, I I remembered, you know, I I I haven't always understood that. Um, I'm very in love with, of course, the Haymarket Martyrs and that whole period of time. I remember reading and you know about Lucy Parsons, a uh, great hero of mine, African American uh, workers movement. She was one of the founders of the Socialist Party too. She, her husband, uh, Albert Parsons, was a Confederate officer in Texas who actually got involved in Reconstruction positively. I guess he was young enough, but mm-hmm. he uh, is because of Lucy. See, he met Lucy and fell in love. But even in Reconstruction, you, uh, uh, a uh, interracial marriage was socially not accepted, so they moved to Chicago. And Albert Parsons, they kept calling him. You know, when you read about the Haymarket Martyrs, the movement, and Lucy herself said he's the only real American. You know that he had to die with them. He probably could have gotten out of dying, but literally he is a martyr. He was a martyr because I think he chose to die as the real American. Mm. So there was, well, that got me thinking as I started writing a lot of Lucy Parsons, writing an introduction, I really got into it, that there were very few real Americans. My grandfather was one, the Scots-Irish Dunbar um, mm-hmm. was in the Socialist Party. Uh, also had an IWW card in Oklahoma. Um, so there were a few, but when I think of it, all of them were German Catholics, Polish, Czech. They weren't. Um, they weren't the real Americans, you know, mm. the descendant from the settlers. So I don't think we've really had, you know, a. Uh, a continuation of, of labor militancy. I don't think we've been, because these these immigrants got Americanized. Right. Yeah. They're no longer worker, you know, workers. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. 
uh, because we ran out of time. Although this last thing that we were just talking about, I'd love to expand on it. So maybe some other point. Um, and I want to thank you, Roxanne. Before I turn this over to Sean, I want to thank everybody for joining us. And I appreciate very much the questions that were uh, posed. I want to encourage people to go to Beacon Press and look to, if you have not read this book, get it. Uh, let me just say that again. If you haven't read it, get it. Uh, this is really a must read. And it's it's a great discussion piece. I don't mean a table, a living room table discussion piece that people look at and say, ooh, ah. I mean, you read it and you want to talk about it, just like the indigenous people's history of the United States. Same thing. New thoughts, very provocative. Uh, you, you know, whether you agree or disagree on, on all the fine points, irrelevant, because it really gets to helping us understand the nature of the United States. That's the critical thing. How do you understand this social formation? And we have to thank, uh, not have to, I want to thank Roxanne for writing such a wonderful book. So Roxanne, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Bill. Wonderful conversation. And thanks to all the questions were, were really, really better than I've ever had in, in different, um, different situations. And thank Lori uh, and, um, and Haymarket and Beacon for sponsoring this. And it's Absolutely. on YouTube, I understand. It so is. That's right. Tell your friends to uh, send them a link. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.